it's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got a good one to kick off the weekend with. We start early uh, during the third half of our three-hour tour, as we like to try and do on Fridays with a musical guest. This one, originally from Brazil, now living in New York, Luca Diel releases a new song called Life of an Immigrant, and we'll hear that and talk with Luca coming up uh, during the third hour of the show. In the second hour, author and NPR host Bill Saubert is uh, going to join me by phone to talk about his debut thriller, The Girl with the Green Lipstick. We're also going to squeeze in uh, from time to time a little bit of uh, music, as we like to do every day on the show when we can. But paying tribute to Back to the Bricks, which is uh, going on with the big Motown concert tonight and the big show tomorrow. We'll have some cartoons by local artists. But first, we're going to talk about the author of... We're going to talk with the, the author of Truth is in the House. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour has authored, co-authored, ghost-wrote, edited, and coached in multiple genres, including memoir, business, and sports. But his new book is uh, his first work of fiction, and it's uh, a, a historic novel based on uh, true events. 
uh, called Truth is in the House. He is uh, also uh, an attorney, vet, and um, former basketball coach. And uh, he joins me by phone. I don't know how he found the time, but my guest is Michael Cofino. <laughs> Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to make the time. Um, you've worn a lot of hats. I feel like I ought to send you one of our one of our baseball caps or something. But um, the book, the uh, Truth is in the House, is the title of the book, and it's inspired by actual events. Um, what events, and and how did they inspire you to write what is now your first time uh, fiction? effort well i had it originally started out my, my goal at the beginning was to write a work of fiction that celebrated the bronx neighborhood where i grew up that was kind of where my focus was and i didn't really have a game plan other than i was going to interview childhood connections you know i could make um get some stories and try and weave it into a narrative and the first two guys i interviewed however um in new york told me about, I mean, told me a lot of things, but they, they told me about this, these twin homicides that had occurred in the, in the neighborhood right before I got out of the service. And I had not heard about it. And two of the kids, two kids who were killed, I knew, I didn't know them well, but I knew them from, you know, hanging out and playing ball and that sort of thing. And I was really just blown away by it. I hadn't, and it was, and it was a racial confrontation in the bar, uh, not too far from my apartment building. And um, so I was really focused on that, and I started to investigate it. And, th- and then I also learned about a gangland attack that had occurred not too far from the neighborhood that also was about race. It was a racial turf war. And I decided then that I would write a different book, that I would I would still celebrate the Bronx or make that the sort of a kind of focus of the book, but that I would write a story about relationships and race connection and I created two characters one white whose family immigrates from Ireland to New York and one black whose family eventually migrates from Mississippi in the the 60s uh, to the Bronx and so that's how it began and there were two like I said the gang attack and and the twin homicides at the bar were actual events that I fictionalized but throughout the narrative eventually and this was all pretty much organic because I, this was a whole new approach I had. I began to use actual events, either ones that I knew of or that came from interviews that I uh, conducted of people who I wanted to contact with about the book. Michael, you grew up in the Bronx and uh, you're writing a book that's sort of centered in the Bronx. You started out to celebrate the Bronx but you live in Marin County, California, which couldn't be farther from the Bronx. How did you end up in California? Nineteen. I'm going to date myself now, but in 1973, I believe it was, um, my wife and I um, decided that we wanted to leave New York. Um, we were both in our mid to late 20s, and uh, so we took a cross-country trip. And uh, we spent three months on the road, mostly in the U.S., some in Canada. And part of the purpose was to find a place to live, uh, a new place in the beginning. And um, we fell in love with San Francisco. And um, I was going to go to law school at the time. And I got into law school in the Bay Area. And so the 
it kind of just dovetailed, and we wound up moving to San Francisco in 1976. Because it almost seems like you were trying to get as far away from the Bronx as you could. <laughs> well, you know, interesting question. In some ways, we you know, we definitely wanted to leave New York. I mean, part of it was, you know, the sweltering summers and the, and, and the tough winters. And part of it was, you know, growth and change. But we also didn't want to leave um, cosmopolitan centers. And so we, we thought San Francisco was a ni- nice microcosm of New York. It, more manageable place to live, you know, with same some of the same attributes, cultural and that sort of thing. And so it was a perfect um, segue for us. Uh, but yeah, we, you know, we would, you know, we had spent our time in the hectic climate, and we wanted to find something a little more manageable. How did you get the the um, uh, bug for for writing uh, a a novel, a fictional account, albeit? Uh, based on actual events? Well, I think that in terms of my own vision for myself, I wanted to, I wanted to be a fiction writer. Um, and, uh, I had, and I had a lot of ideas about how to do that, but I wound up actually doing um, ghostwriting memoir and stuff first. And I also wrote sports books, as you alluded to earlier, based on my basketball coaching career. And I, I wanted to get to the, the fiction, not... Uh, work and I just um, it was something I always wanted to do once I got a real good taste for writing I mean I was a legal writer obviously I taught I was a writing coach as a lawyer I had written stuff um, while I was practicing law and I had that was published that sort of thing and, but fiction storytelling it was a storytelling component that I wanted to get to and memoir writing was really a nice segue too because you're telling other people's stories they're, they're tethered to truth uh, which is a major difference, but there's still storytelling pieces in it. But so fiction and and ability to create imaginatively and have the freedom to write the book you want to write was what motivated me. So now I've got one under my belt. I'm looking forward to many more. I, I was going to ask you if you had the bug. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, I've got a lot. Of, I've, I just started my second one. I've got a number of ideas for others. Um. But as you pointed out earlier, I'm pretty busy, and so it's a matter of pacing right now. Um, and I'll get into that in a couple of minutes about you know how you go about writing. But I'm really fascinated about a um, about a white guy from the Bronx writing a story like this that that has America's troubled racial history woven through it mm-hmm. you know it this is in the climate we're in now um you know there's there's been a lot of pushback on cultural authenticity and in, in, in fiction writing as you know from the american dirt book and other situations but i, I didn't really feel compromised in in this sense to me uh, and I recognize that in terms of opportunities that, you know, people of color, for example, have not had the same publishing opportunities as whites have had. And that's starting to change. Um, and certainly would not want to kind of shadow anybody's voice. But from, from my from my perspective, um, it, it was about kind of providing my vision, you know, my experience, how I saw it growing up in the Bronx, um, the relationships I had, uh, and, and, you know, reaching an audience that perhaps other writers couldn't reach, um, which we need, and I think we need more of that. I think we need to obviously multiply the voices out there on these matters. But my perspective, um, and, and the characters in the book, 
are inspired in some ways by you know people I knew. Obviously, they're grounded also in research and stuff like that. And I don't I don't purport to you know, be the voice of people of color far from it. But I do have a vision and I do have a sense of things. And so the book is written from those two eyes. And um, you know my approach. Ultimately, and as I said, this was pretty organic in how it unfolded, because it's not the book I intended to write in the beginning, was to provide a different perspective on matters of race in terms of not, you know, structural stuff or systemic perspective or politics or infrastructure changes and those kinds of things that you read about in books like The New Jim Crow or in Cast, uh, but on an individual basis, how we relate to people day to day. And that's kind of where I wound up in the book is, you know, focusing on the importance of human connection. And at the end of the day, I think the book is really, obviously it's got a racial thread from, from beginning to end uh, because, you know, how it's laid out. But in the end, it's really about human connection. And humanity. You know, Michael, there are at least three um, parts of your life that that seem to have informed this book and this story ultimately your life growing up in the bronx your life as an attorney and um and also your life as a basketball coach to what degree did each of those inform the vision that that you share in this book great question i you know i the way it wound up, obviously, is there are a number of scenes in the book that borrow on my personal experiences, both in the courtroom, uh, on the basketball court, and the like. I, um, I think the courtroom scenes flowed naturally from the character development. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're not a major part of the book, but they're an important part when they do occur. Um, the Bronx stuff is 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 very vital to to the narrative because I really do get into the culture that I grew up in, uh, in a neighborhood called the Bronx, in the called Highbridge, uh, in the Bronx. But the basketball stuff was a little bit different from my perspective because, you know, having been a basketball player and having been a coach for so many years, I understood how powerful that medium can be for overriding and, and rising above race and racial tension. And so I laid it out in the book and, you know, in a way in which, allows these two main characters to come together through that medium where they otherwise might not. And, um, and it's not perfect, obviously. It's not a perfect world in that regard. But one of the wonderful things about competitive athletics is how we find common ground above all that stuff. Uh, it's the lovely of the game, whatever the game is you play, for the competition, you know, and for the emotional aspects of victory and defeat, that sort of thing. And those become more important than the color of skin and where you live and who you are. So to that extent, you know, and I don't spend a lot of time on it in the book. There are a couple, there are a number of basketball scenes, obviously, in the book. Um, but it, but it's there as a metaphor for where I think good things can happen. More about his historical novel, Truth is in the House, a novel inspired by actual events by Michael Cofino is straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Lion. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org.
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about his historical novel, Truth is in the House, a novel inspired by actual events by Michael Cofino is straight ahead. But you talk about uh, the ability of basketball, um, or, or sports in general, but basketball specifically, to dissolve the racial divide, um, albeit temporarily. And and oh. you kind of talk about how coaches and teachers might instill a sense of colorblindness or colorblind team unity, even off the court. How can they do that? How can, you know, people... People leave, uh, you know, leave their coaches and teachers behind their schools, their basketball courts, and go back to their neighborhoods. Well, that's a that's a tough that's a tough one. Uh, I, I'm the first to admit. You know, I wrote another book called The Other Classroom: um, The Essential Importance of High School Athletics, and in that book, I advocate um, for the, the vital importance of competitive athletics in the, at the high school level because I think of the profound impact it has on student-athletes, not just for their experiences at the time, but for their adulthood and their value systems and the lessons they learn. And, I, and, and the point I make in that book, which is really similar to what you're getting at, is that a value-based athletic program is essential for how we nurture young kids, particularly in that environment. And, you know, if kids learn, for example, how to communicate effectively, they learn how to advocate for themselves, they learn how to be empathetic to other people um, and be community leaders, understand their role in the community, um, understand their role in a group setting, uh, that everyone has a role to play for the greater good. Those kinds of things athletics can nurture and teach and becoming sort of guideposts for for kids after they get out of college and into the adult world. So... um, I don't, again, the book doesn't delve into that. It lays a little bit of the groundwork. It teases it a little bit, but, but I feel strongly about that. And so I, I do still believe um, that competitive athletics is a powerful medium um, for social change. And you, talk, you also talk about the ideal of brothers in combat. How much is that informed by your experiences when you were in Vietnam? Well, actually, I did not serve in Vietnam. I, oh, I, uh, I, I know I, you I, were in the military during the Vietnam era, and I just I, yeah, assumed. Well, I yes, I was. I served in '68 to '70, um, and I just uh, luck of the draw got sent overseas to Europe. I, you know, I it's a conflict that's in the book that that the military um, and I did a lot of research on this, and I interviewed a lot of Marines and um, looked at a lot of different materials and found that, much like my experience in the military, I think when, when the chips are down, um, you know, the values that guide military action in combat and the like, those rise above the racial divide because you, you, you know, your, your survival is at stake. You have to count on everybody and rely on everybody and adhere to a system without variation so people can be effective in combat. But, you know, on the other hand, what we've seen in the last few years in the nation you know, we've seen a rise of white supremacy in the military. We've seen the military not really get the job done the way it is uniquely situated to do. So I think that, you know, I think the military is poised to, to have a major impact on these issues. But right now, I, I'm not as optimistic as I might have been um, until recently. So, I, you know, the military does, in terms of their, their, their creed, 
have the, the values in place for that, but it's implementation that's the issue. Now, you said you didn't write about um, specifically about systemic uh, racism or um, uh, infrastructure and those, you know, the, the politics of, of race relations and so on. But yet, you spent some time in the in the legal system. Is there the kind of systemic racism we see talked about in in uh, um, protested by uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and others? Well, I don't think there's any question about you know, and and I'm not an expert on it. I think if anyone really is interested in, in that question and the answer to that question, they ought to read the new Jim Crow, which is now, I think, 10 years out um, by Michelle Alexander, which lays it out in great, exhausting detail. I, I just don't think there's any question about it. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a politician. I'm not a social scientist. Um, and I'm not an expert on it. But I've done a lot of reading on it, and I don't, I don't really have any doubt about it. Um, it's just the system is, is rigged in that regard. You've been living out in California for a long time. Do you do you go back to the Bronx and, and visit and and did you at all when you were researching the book? Well, I did go back to New York when I was writing the book to interview some people. Um, you know, it wasn't a, a special trip. You know, I have family there, so I go back there all the time. I have actually visited my old neighborhood in Highbridge um, two or three times over the last. So maybe a decade or so. Um, it's interesting going back to the old neighborhood. What you think is so large and so, seems now so tiny. <laughs> um, Has it I, changed I a lot? Well, you know, it's yeah. I, well, when my family left, I was in the military again, and that's that was another reason I hadn't heard about the homicides. Because when I came out of the service, we had lived in a new neighborhood in the Bronx. But um, when we moved from there. We lived in a very integrated neighborhood. Um, when we first got there, it was pretty much mostly white uh, with, you know, a noticeable population of Puerto Rican families. By the time we left, it was integrated um, pretty well. I mean, and, you know, the glue for us, for the kids, you know, the glue was sports. You know, we, we came together for sports. Um, you know, we partied a little bit. We did some of that. But culturally, everyone went back to their own lives. But but on the basketball court or the football field, um, or even in the street games, you know whether it's you know punch ball, stickball, that sort of thing, people came together. Um, going back recently, uh, it is not integrated. You know, it's um, mostly African American and, and, and Hispanic, um, and you know some buildings are gone, um, and uh, you know it's it's, it's I, w- I would assume it's impoverished, but I haven't, you know, I do, do a study of that. But yeah, it's definitely changed. What definitely kind? What kind of research did you find yourself doing for this book? Primarily, I, I, I interviewed thirty people. I interviewed thirty people, and most of the interviews were driven by making sure that I had factual authenticity, even though I was writing a work of fiction. For example, um, there's stuff in the book about rabbit hunting, which I don't have a clue about. So I interviewed a rabbit hunter. <laughs> um, there's stuff in the book about emergency room 
procedures and experiences. So I interviewed an emergency room doctor and a nurse. Um, you know, there's five chapters on the Vietnam War and the Marines, and I interviewed several Marines um, for that, and and so on. Uh, I also, um, did, I mean, I read countless books, and I, I viewed a number of documentaries and, and YouTube videos, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I did an, an exhaustive amount of research, and most of, but you know, some of it was to inspire thoughts about episodes and scenes. Um, but most of it was driven to make sure that I didn't want readers suspending belief about things and rolling their eyes and say, oh, that would never happen. Um, I was concerned about that. I think I would, you know, I, I'm pretty confident that that is that everything in the book, I mean, there might be a factual thing here and there. So in my was, for example, somebody called me to, to say that pop top designs for dealers weren't in, uh, in place until 1962. And I have, uh, one of the characters popping opening a beer with a pop top in 1959. <laughs> That's what. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but but I knew about that. I wanted the pop top for the scene, of, for you know, creative reasons, of, for the moment that it created. But but other than that, in terms of these issues we're talking about, I spent a lot of time making sure that I was tethered to reality. Um, the interviews were the most illuminating. Uh, they were incredible, particularly the ones of people who served in the military, um, who were willing, to, after 50 years, um, have ever been in, in Vietnam, including a number of Marines who fought in the Tet Offensive, um, willing to kind of spare their souls with me. Uh, it was incredible, incredible, very inspiring. And for some of them, Michael, I suspect that was maybe the first time that they shared some of that information with somebody. Yeah, there was one guy, this was... A, Thanks for that question, because it allows me to share this. He was an amputee, and we were talking about, you know, I kind of had slow-stepped the, the interview, was kind of get background and this and that. And we finally got to the incident where he he lost a limb, and which was at Tet. And um, we were getting into it, and then he just went silent. And I asked him if everything was okay, and he started to cry. And he said he was blown away by his reaction because he hadn't talked about this in a long, long time. And he thought he was well past it. But just, just talking to me about it had opened it all up. Um, and we actually wind up terminating the call and resuming it another time because it, was, it became too, too heavy for him. So, yeah, I was, they were really gracious with their time and their courage in talking to me. The title of the book is uh, Truth is in the House, and I'm curious about where that title came from. What truth? What house? For most of the manuscript, uh, I'd say about three-quarters of it, I had a different title, and um, I was really happy with it, and the people that I had shared it with liked it. Um, but I was writing the major scene in the book at the bar, um, literally in the middle of the dialogue, that title came to me. Not as a book title at first. It came to me as something to put in the, di in the dialogue as a, as a narrative thought. Uh, because it, and, I'll, and I'll revert back to where it came, comes from. But it was in that moment that, that those words became embedded in the story. And then I said to myself, after thinking about it, oh my God, 
that's a perfect title too. So that's how it, it it came. But there's a scene in the book um, during the Vietnam era when the two main characters are hospitalized, and um, and by coincidence are are, are laying down next to each other in a uh, Navy ship off the coast of uh, Da Nang. And the black character, Jayla Jackson, you know, starts talking about what it's going to be like for him as a black man going back to the United States in comparison to how it's going to be for his, his, his comrade and friend going back as a white guy. And they have a little discussion about it, and Jalen challenges Jimmy in the sense that, you know, when the race card gets dealt, we'll see who you really are. We'll see what your truth is. And it's that moment of sort of reckoning between the two of them, well, not reckoning, but that sort of laying the seeds for a future reckoning that is this, is really where the title comes from ultimately because, you know, Jimmy gets challenged in the bar in terms of whether he's going to he's going to be, you know, true true to Jalen or true to his, his friends who, who are racist and, and um, creating a scene at the bar. So that's kind of the context of it. And um, the house, the word house is just a metaphor, you know, for the environment in which they're in. Uh, but the truth is, where, you, where are you when the chips are down and you have to, you know, show, who you, show your actions rather than your words? Well, it's um, a, a tremendous undertaking. What's, what's next, Michael? Well, like I said earlier, I have started a, a second work of fiction that's based on an experience I had uh, many years ago after the war, um, hitchhiking. Um, it's a whole other story. But I am also thinking about turning the book into a screenplay. And I don't have screenplay writing experience, so now I'm, you know, I'm doing the usual diligence, reading books, taking courses, and... Um, trying to understand how to convert uh, a work of fiction into a screenplay narrative, which, of course, is a different beast entirely. Um, so that's, that's the next major thing on, on the agenda for me. Do you, spe- do you expect that you'll stay somewhat close to the genre of uh, uh, historic fiction? Wow, great question. I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. I, I think that... Um, I mean, it's a, to some extent, it's it's convenient to take actual events and fictionalize them because I I find that to be naturally easy to do. Um, it's a whole other thing to create from whole cloth. I mean, there are many scenes in this book that are whole cloth created, um, and I'm really proud of those. But but writing an entire book that way is a bigger undertaking. So I don't. But I, so I'm not sure I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to move away from it eventually because I think the bigger challenge is is just creating stories that come wholly from my creative juices. Um, you know, like this next book, the one on the hitchhiking trip, that's a true story. So that one's going to be, I wouldn't call it historical fiction, in the sense it, which is more the history we all shared. It'd be more personal in that regard. But I think I'm going to move away from it over time, that's my sense of where I'm headed. I, I wondered about that because I, um, I've talked to a number of writers, uh, and and some are really locked into historic fiction because of a love of history, and you know they they like storytelling. 
But then there are a lot of uh, people I write, especially uh, thriller writers mm -hmm. um, and mystery writers, who really enjoy that, you know, creating a world and a series of events and the characters. And, and I always ask them, you know, which comes first, the story or the characters? Do you cast characters into an already existing story? Or do you come up with characters and then figure out what would happen to them? But, um, but when you write based on uh, actual events, as you have in this book, truth is in the house it, it seems like the characters and and the story are, are somewhat outlined for you already well you know i'm not sure i would share that let, let me tell you why one of the things that the probably the thing i'm most proud about in this book is that there are so many um what i'd say are disparate events that that occurred in history that are unconnected to one another and, you know, for example, the gang attack, which is early in the book, and the bar homicides, which is later in the book, they have no historical connection. And then there are a number of incidents in the book that um, either I got from interviewing, you know, the people I interviewed with or, or that I create or that I found on, on, in reading and documentary stuff, that sort of thing, that are in there but fictionalized that have no connection to one another. And so one of the challenges was, how do I thread my essential theme to all of these things in a coherent way that where it hangs together, including, you know, there are actual non-fictionalized aspects in the book about the Vietnam War. Some of the, a lot of the battles that I refer to are actual battles. The statistics I share about that in the war and the quotes from politicians are actual. They're, they're not fictionalized. Um, so the, the challenge was putting it all together, even though none of it, you know, it's not like you go and you do a, a story on, you know, like, you know, the, for example, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, Wilmington's Lie, which came out a year or two ago, um, about white supremacy in North Carolina, and basically take that, all the events there and fictionalize them. If you did that, for example, you have, but the, these events were all unrelated to each other. So I think... You know that's the thing I'm most proud of. I think it all holds together, and but and and, it's, and each of those events served the central theme, um, and that was the challenge. So, uh, you know, most historical fiction is not that way. You know, there is a story, you know, an an era that they focus on, and it's 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 sort of like self-made in that regard. This is just taking a hodgepodge of things. And putting it together, in, you know, like I say, in a coherent, consistent narrative. Michael, when did or does the the book drop? As they say, you mean you mean the release? It, yeah. It's released. It's it's out. It's out. It came out um, last month. Okay. The middle, early July. Yeah. And it's uh, it, and it's available. I'm sure where all fine books are sold, but I. Um, did want to ask you if you well i always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you the book and your work past present and future um do you have a website michael i do thank you for asking um and it's easy to remember it's it's michaelcafino.com uh and all my works and my services and all that stuff is on the website um the book as you point out you know, the usual suspects 
sell, sell the book, you know, Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. But I would encourage, um, you, you know, your listeners to sort of support their local independent bookstores. And, and if they don't have the book, they have order it. Um, I think it would be helpful. Well, Michael, thank you so much for spending this time with me to talk about this book. And uh, uh, what are you hoping people will get out of the book? You know, I got that question recently. It's such a great question. Um, and the, I'll give you the same answer I, I, I did then because it really is how I feel. And that is, I'm hoping that, obviously I want to entertain. You know, I want them to be entertained. I want them to kind of, you know, be eager about the next chapter, that sort of thing, uh, that the stories speak to them. But mostly, I hope that people are brought to some self-introspection about who they are in terms of the race relationships they have, how they see other people, their ability to, to, to see the world through their eyes, that, and, and really be self-honest about it. Because one of the things, even writing the book by myself, caused me to kind of go deep inside to check myself out. And I think if people read this book and take a moment to look at themselves and, and, and ask, them, you know, ask themselves, you know, where, where, where are my flaws and fears and, and limitations when it comes to race? Um, you know, we all have racial bias. Anyone who says they don't have racial bias is fooling themselves. I mean, we grew up in a culture where it's, it's rampant. And that doesn't make it necessarily malevolent. It just makes it something we have to deal with. And so if people will read the book and kind of take a look inward, I think that would be a great accomplishment. Well, Michael, again, thank you for spending this time with me, and keep up the good work. Thanks Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. All right, you too. Bye. Bye. The book is called Truth is in the House, a novel inspired by actual events by Michael J. Cofino. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
This is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. 
The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I got them Buick City Blues. Ain't no cure for them Buick City Blues. Oh, my heart is aching. I've got them Buick City Blues. I got them Buick City Blues since my band drove me down. Do you remember last summer?
Tom Sumner program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Al Hatch with Back to the Bricks, and you're listening to the Tom Summer Show. Stream us live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon at TomSumnerProgram.com, made possible by listeners like you. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation.
show down here it's a Tom Sumner program don't you know go on go on get out of here 